This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive. And I'm Fran Kelly, the host of RN Breakfast. Hosting together, my favourite thing, Fran. Uh, and got to change my voice from happy to sad because sad has been the mood in mm. Australia, but really acutely, I think it's fair to say, in Melbourne, where I live, it's been a really super disturbing rough week here in Victoria. We're recording this, can I say, on a Thursday morning, and um, we won't even be able to give you the, the numbers for the day uh, and why would we, of course, we, we kind of look and zoom out for the week. But what I can tell you, they're not published yet, is that they're incredibly high. And just to give you a sense, because I think that's what we try to do here about that and how and the mood in this state particularly, I've literally just received 20 text messages from friends, journalists, people just going, oh, my God, the numbers, mm. oh, my God. That's what we do in Melbourne now. It's like, honestly, the way we operate on the the promise that they'll go down. And we thought they were going down. Um, Today is going to be a really hard day, Thursday. We don't know what will happen when you're listening on a Friday or a Saturday. Hopefully we'll go down again, but clearly it's really high. And the reason it's really high, Fran, and that's what we're going to get into here, is what's happening in aged care. It is a crisis Mm -hmm. in aged care in Victoria. Corona is spreading in the most disturbing way and old people are dying. Yeah, that's sadly true, PK. Most of the deaths are occurring in aged care homes, just a small nub of them, because that's where the most vulnerable people are living. The hard truth about this virus is that, you know, we've now seen a, a breakdown of infections by age group. It shows really clearly that people under 30 have the highest rates of infection, but it's the older people who get the sickest and are dying from this virus. And the situation in some aged care homes is now very, very bleak. I've spoken this week to a number of family members whose mothers, in this case, were were in the St Basil's home in Melbourne. A, A lot of infections, a lot of deaths in that home, you know, some mismanagement, not just of the infection, but also of the communication with families. And this keeps happening. We saw it in Newmarch House. We've seen it in St Basil's and others where, you know, family members are being told um, in one conversation from inside the home, oh, yes, your mum's fine. She's in her room. She's doing well. And then they get a call from a hospital saying your mother's in the hospital here. She's very close to death. You better come in. I mean, it's just unbelievable and hurtful. In fact, two of the men I spoke to this week have now lost their mothers due to the virus. It's so so sad. I was walking around the park, Fran, listening to those men talk, and it was a a lovely interview you did, but actually really painful to hear about their experiences. And I want to mention I'm Greek Australian, that it's hit the Greek Australian community, the Greek Melbourne Mm. community really hard. Uh, that is sort of uh, the sort of nursing home my parents have died, but I would have had them in, you know what I mean? Like that is yeah. something we're very close to and it it feels very real for us at the moment too. So it's a community that has been particularly hit hard because of that centre, uh, that, that aged care centre. But uh, look, what's happened politically, this is a political podcast, of course, is we are now seeing tensions running really high between the Commonwealth and the state government. They've kind of tried to get it back on the rails now, but a lot of emotions about responsibility, what's happened here, why has this gone wrong? And it really boiled over when we heard the Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews, earlier this week. Here he is. Some of the stories we've seen are unacceptable and I wouldn't want my mum in some of those places. 
I cannot imagine better care that my family and my father could have got. And the idea that our carers, that our nurses are not providing that care, I think is a dangerous statement to make. They are wonderful human beings and I won't hear a word against them. That was the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, PK, who got pretty sort of emotional as he sort of struck back at that um, those comments from Dan Andrews where he invoked his mother in this. It got very personal, didn't it? Oh, it got really personal and... And political. And political. So let's just, a bit of a time frame here, because I think it's important. People, I did an interview, for instance, with the aged care minister, and people said, why did you keep pressing him on, on whether he was upset with the state government? You know, it should be about unity. I'll tell you why, because the federal government had briefed out, um, and we know this because there were many stories, Fran, uh, briefed out that they had been trying to convince the Andrews government to, for instance, cancel elective surgery so that they could free up beds so they could get people out of aged care and that there'd been some kind of delay or resistance. So it showed, obviously, that for that to happen, there was a genuine tension there. Now, the the Andrews government, um, the the Premier is saying, hang on a minute, no, there was no delay. I was asked by, you know, I was asked, and he said this very clearly, I was asked by the Prime Minister, uh, we had our Cabinet meeting, we did it you know, that, that that this is not true. But really what this is about, why would this argument even be going on? Our listeners might be wondering. It's about who's to blame, mm. right? Because so far everyone's been like, oh, it's generally been managed well. Oh, the numbers are a bit high in Victoria. All of a sudden, Fran, this is real. These are real people's relatives. These are the numbers we've been warned are going to grow. We're going to experience tragedy in this country, particularly in this state. And there is a sense of, hang on a minute, who messed up here? Who actually yeah. messed up? The truth is column A, column B, in my view. I mean, it's a dual, it's a dual responsibility. Both layers of government need to bear responsibility. Well, that's true. And you're right. It's because the stakes, the costs of this are so high in, in real life terms, life and death terms, and also politically. But the thing is, why do you don't want to really get distracted by a blame game? And I get that. I get all the aged care groups who are saying, we don't want your political posturing, we want focus. But the thing is, it is important to work out, PK, what's going on and what's going wrong so it can be fixed and it doesn't occur in other homes still in Victoria and that you have to, you know, you have to zero in to where mistakes have been made. Obviously, the Victorian government made the mistakes that led to community transmission that introduced via casual workers often the virus into these aged care homes. That is true and you can't argue with that. But the federal government is responsible too in the sense that it has responsibility for um, care in most of these nursing homes. We knew before this pandemic hit last year that infection control protocols and levels of staffing and care were a problem in many aged care homes. And we knew that because there's an aged care royal commission going on and it told us that. Now, when this pandemic struck this year, some of those homes were vulnerable because their systems were underplanned and understaffed, under-resourced. And it seems that all the warnings in the world we had about this of the virus striking, you know, in Europe, striking aged care homes, didn't propel the authorities into quick enough action. The Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, it must be said, disagrees with what I just said. He said this week, and I'm quoting him here, aged care is immensely prepared. But, you know, sadly, I think the tragic outcomes we're seeing in some homes suggest he's quite wrong. I think uh, it's it's an understatement. Yeah, I think he's he's wrong. This whole where they're prepared will really, <laughs> yeah.
But now we've just got to get on top of it. That's the thing now. You know, you can do both. You need to still have a review over what went wrong and whether that happens today. Uh, okay, let's let's maybe defer that and deal with the ongoing crisis. And I think the changes that the federal government has made have been good. Uh, whether they've come too late, well, I suppose we'll see through what happens in the next couple of days and weeks. It uh, is extraordinary, though, PK. I mean, we've got nursing teams coming from South Australia over to Victoria. We've got, as you mentioned earlier, the all the operations are stopping in the private hospitals so some of those nursing staff can be moved into these aged care homes. It's sort of like all hands on deck. It's a real scramble. Yesterday, the the federal government, publicly at least, did take a step in the right direction, trying to get this back on the rails and sort of, you know, say we are taking control. Here's Scott Morrison in the Prime Minister's courtyard yesterday. I genuinely want to thank um, the Victorian government uh, for working with us to get these solutions in place. These are our shared responsibilities, as the Premier and I know. Our officials, our teams are working together to just focus on the problem. So publicly, it does look like they got that back on message and we should be happy about that. I think we want that. We just, I don't have any space when there are too many deaths already and high numbers in my own state to hear them say he did it, she did it. So you heard really different, more conciliatory words from the Prime Minister and then Daniel Andrews. We did hear the Prime Minister call it um, the Victorian wave yesterday, so he said Mm. it's not a second wave, but he did call it the Victorian wave. I thought that was pretty pointed. I wasn't really a fan of the Victorian wave language. Look, yeah, you can talk in facts. Uh, Of course, it's happening predominantly in Victoria. Victoria is not responsible for coronavirus in Australia, but of course the outbreak and getting on top of the outbreak has happened here. So I understand what the PM's trying to say, that it's a particular problem. Yes, you know, he makes the point, that's a fact, it's a problem in Victoria, but I think in a national setting, he is the Prime Minister of Australia. You need to be very careful about that kind of language because Mm. I can tell you, as a Melbourneian, not just as a journalist, a co-host of this podcast, there is Melbourneians are feeling pretty bruised at the moment. We want to hear unity. We don't want to be kicked. And you know, just like when it was called the Chinese virus, it's not the Vic- yeah. it's not the Victorian. It's not our virus. It's, it's hurting us. Wave. It's killing us. It's not our wave. There's a few fractures emerging more broadly in the National Cabinet solidarity too, which people have loved, this solidarity between the premiers and the chief ministers and the prime minister. But we got, for instance, this week, you know, Anastasia Palaszczuk, the Queensland premier, suddenly announcing that the borders to uh, New South Wales to Sydney will be shut again. And Gladys Berejiklian, the New South Wales premier, had to come up and say, well, it would have been nice if she told me first before she announced that. And you go, oh, yeah, well, why? wouldn't you, I wonder? Um, Then there's also uh, the Prime Minister escalating a dispute with the Western Australia Premier, Mark McGowan, over WA's hard border closure. He's warned the Premier that his, quote, all or nothing approach will highly likely fall foul of the Constitution. And of course, Clive Palmer has taken the WA government to the High Court and the federal government has joined that action. So, you know, it's not all rosy within. PK, just to move away from the virus for a moment, because there's another really important uh, story this week thing that's happened and it's the release of the new closing the gap targets the targets themselves some of them are new and some of them are different but the most important thing about this and we've been waiting for this for a while because it's been a very you know detailed procedure it's been is about the way these targets are devised and the way we hopefully will achieve them it's a radical radically different approach 
It's a really radically different approach because it involves this kind of, you know, agreement between Indigenous uh, peaks and the government and the state and territories. So it's this partnership deal, which I think is a good idea. It's a good concept. You want Indigenous people to have control and buy-in. That's the way the world should work, right? That's the way it should have always worked. Uh, There is a lot of room for error, though, Fran, and, and I think it's okay to critique where they've gone with this and also to question given the failure of the last version, you know, what's going to change and whether it will actually lead to better outcomes because we know Aboriginal Australians and Torres Strait Islanders have been let down by governments for a very long time, whether this can change their situation. I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced, although I want to have hope because I believe that we need to do this in an urgent way. But all state and territory governments have now signed up to these 16 targets as part of this national agreement. Um, and, you know, the groups that are part of this say that this is going to move the country in a new direction to improve outcomes. A couple of the key things that I think are important is that Australia will commit to reducing Indigenous imprisonment rates, also Mm -hmm. suicides, and the Indigenous suicide rate in this country is abhorrent. It's unbelievable and uh, it clearly is a crisis uh, situation and also child removals too. This is good that these things are on the table. There still will be criticism and I think that's right about the rate of that change. For instance, um, one of the ideas is moving 30% of young Indigenous prisoners out of detention by 2031. There are people who say it should be more ambitious. Broadly, it's better than the old version, but again, the proof will be in the delivery. It always is. Yes. On that note, PK, should we bring in our guest? Let's do it. <laughs> Peter Harcher is political editor and international editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Welcome back to The Party Room. Nice to be here, Patricia. Hey, Peter, it's a terrible situation, obviously, in Victoria right now. We're recording this on Thursday morning after two days of falling infection numbers in Victoria, so there was sort of reason for hope that perhaps the peak had been reached. But then today, more than 700 people infected with this virus. Lockdown just doesn't seem to be working yet. Yes, it's a very difficult, uh, it's also a very widely experienced syndrome with this very slippery uh, virus around the world. Countries that uh, were lauded for having gotten on top of it at the beginning are all struggling or almost all struggling with the same thing. And really, uh, I mean, we know that Victoria had fundamental failures of competence Uh, in generating this second wave, and it was the hotel quarantine in particular. And there are still unanswered questions about the bungling there, which have been sort of covered up at least temporarily by referring it off to a commission of inquiry. But really beyond that, beyond knowing that and trying trying to avoid any repeat of that, the only method is to doing exactly what state and federal governments are now doing. Which is, you know, trying to, some of them locking down borders, and there's, PK and I have already spoken about, some of the tensions around that. Um, but another problem that seems to be emerging, though, is there a bit of, is a bit of insurgency sort of around this. Some people are refusing to wear masks, some people are charging through borders, and the statistics um, from movements of Victorians suggest that, you know, during this lockdown period, people in Melbourne aren't staying home as rigorously as they were during lockdown, uh, during lockdown one. I mean, is this a problem for governments as we manage this over longer and longer timeframes that people just get sick of it? Yes, it is a problem for government, and it's, uh, I would suggest to you, largely a self-inflicted problem because it was state and federal governments, but particularly uh, federal, that created the impression through their public rhetoric that this was just a one-off uh, epidemic 
that you'd slam the lid on it. We'd all sit tight for a few weeks. The lift would come off and it was party time again. And that's just wrong. It was always wrong, but mm. it was the impression that was created. But that's where we are. So governments have to, in, in my view, talk and manage the country into living with this thing until and unless there is a vaccine. And what's talking and, and living with this thing? Because it's different in different places. That's the, the issue with the national message, isn't it, Peter? That in yeah. Victoria, where I am, living with it means, well, being in lockdown and really being on high alert. I've got to be honest, uh, with the numbers are staggeringly high again. We don't know what they'll be in coming days. We're recording this on a Thursday. Living with this thing might be different in WA. How do you craft that message as a national leader and keep that national unity together? Okay, well, I'm not a national leader, and thank God for Aren't that. You? <laughs> Damn, we've but, got the wrong guy. For that. But I would say that a, a flip back and forth between two states of being where it's everything's shut down and everything's open cannot continue. That's debilitating. It destroys not only economic activity, obviously, but people's uh, mood and public confidence. And it just creates the impression that this is terminal. State and federal leaders need to uh, get everybody into a semi-permanent mode of behaviour now that involves consciously keeping distances, consciously changing their travel and other daily routines, and big one, wearing masks as a routine matter. We need to get into that mode of living and adjusting rather than flipping back and forth and resenting it every time. Look, while that pandemic takes most of the attention, and so it should, it is the biggest story in the world, two mask-wearing cabinet ministers got off the plane in Washington this week for the annual Osmin talks. That was the Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, and the Defence Minister, Linda Reynolds. Peter, first, let's just translate the acronym, Australia-United States Ministerial Consultations. What exactly gets discussed at these meetings and why did they go themselves? I know there's a bit of a discussion about whether they needed to actually go. Well, in years past, I've always thought of this, Patricia, as sort of provincial governors going to Rome to talk to the imperial authorities about uh, affairs in their part of the empire and seeking some help with their problems and, and some more attention from, from the emperor and uh, and seeing what the emperor wants from them. And it's it's usually pretty pretty routine and slow moving. This recent years, they've been dealing with the fact the fact that's been acknowledged implicitly and explicitly within the meeting rooms that the emperor is mad, and that of course is Donald Trump. Uh, he's not in the room. He doesn't join the meetings, but they have to work their way around that. And the knowledge on both sides that the emperor is mad, and it's been a bit of a, a case of managing. Uh, managing that and keeping the, the show together in the last couple of years. This year has been a, a big change. In those last couple of years, Donald Trump was mainly preoccupied for the first three years with trying to cut a trade deal, a big level, high level trade deal with China. And as we know from John Bolton, the former Trump's former national security advisor in his book, we know from him that Donald Trump asked Xi Jinping, president of China, for help to get re-elected by buying uh, soybeans, another American products. As his hope for getting such a deal cut have faded, he's turned instead, uh, if that's not going to get me re-elected, let's have a blue with China instead and confront them and let's see if that gets me re-elected. And that's got the Americans moving on a broad agenda uh, of confronting and decoupling China. And that has, in most of the practical ways that they've been interested in doing that, has suited the Australians. The Australian government has been anxious about how to manage the China problem for years, and they've come together in this meeting. But they haven't gone all the way with LBJ, I should hasten, no. hasten to add, or all the way with Donald J. 
Well, that's important, isn't it? Because that sort of madness or erraticness that you've been referring to there. I'm I'm just wondering, you know, there was criticism of the two ministers flying all the way to Washington. America's got such trouble with the pandemic. When they come home, they're going to have to isolate for two weeks. Um, But some suggest, some are saying privately that perhaps the reason they were sent over in person is because it's easier to say no in person and that what Australia was saying doing was going over there to, yes, of course, get engaged and get American support for more engagement in the in, in the region um, and, and get on the same page to some degree with pushback for, to China, which is obviously muscling up against Australia at the moment in the way that's very uncomfortable for our and, and dangerous for our universities, our barley producers, all the rest of it. Um, but that, you know, if you're going to say no, then you say it in person. And Maurice Payne at the press conference afterwards did make it clear she was saying no. I mean, she said a number of times, Peter, didn't she? We make our own decisions. Yes, we share fundamental values, but we don't agree with everything. It's a real commentary on the relationship, isn't it, when you have to state repeatedly that you have an independent foreign policy. Doesn't that tell you a lot about the the expectations and the atmospherics? As for saying no, yes, it is easier, I suppose, or at least um, more sincere to say no in person. But it was also a matter of saying saying please to the Americans. The saying no aspect is essentially that uh, Mike Pompeo has effectively declared uh, the end of American engagement with China, uh, an engagement that went back to 1972. He's um, not explicitly but implicitly announced that the goal of American strategy has now switched to uh, regime change in Beijing, which in my view is not only extreme but deranged. Uh, And He's also, we know that for years now, the Americans have been pressing the Australians to not only sail freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea, but also to do so within the 12 nautical mile territorial limit uh, that surrounds Beijing's claims. And the Australians have always resisted that. And we know from Malcolm Turnbull's book, the reason, as Malcolm Turnbull explained, no government would do that because if they went into that provo- more provocative realm of within the 12 nautical miles and were confronted by the Chinese and there were an incident, an Australian government could never be confident that the Americans would do anything about it and we could be left uh, alone and very much exposed. And so Australia said no on all of those things in this Osmian. And that's really very important. Well, we came out of it with something tangible. It's a defence treaty. Um, So there's a bit of paper that's got a list of things on it. Um, Another thing that Australia, I think, was keen to get was an assurance that if um, those freedom of navigation exercises do continue there in the South China Sea, which is a flashpoint. I mean, we need to, you know, there's a lot of careful attention being paid there, that if we ever are engaged in a greater degree, say, within that 12 nautical mile range, that it's not just us, that it's the countries around those seas too that have a direct interest that are involved as well. Do you know if we pushed that hard with the Americans? And do you know what the, if the Americans are interested in that at all? Or is, is all of that kind of detail a sort of a bit too distant for them, given the presidential election is less than 100 days away now? Well, what I'm told is that the 12 nautical mile thing was was ruled out. It's not on the table for the Australians. But broadly, uh, to answer that the concept of closer regional engagement and other countries being drawn more for, more formally in a more structured way into an anti-China or put it the other way around, pro-freedom of navigation, pro-international uh, law coalition 
that's very much on the agenda. It's something that the US and Australia have been working towards. And specifically, the most concrete part of that we're talking about is the Quad, which is an attempt to bring together the four countries of the US, Australia, Japan, and the most reluctant partner at the dance, India. So that's that's been going on and talks to bring other countries into maritime patrolling as well. Uh, Vietnam is particularly keen uh, to join, but other regional countries too. But at the same time, you've got... Um, this going on, and you've got Mike Pompeo in his uh, rather extraordinary and inflammatory speech last week in Washington, and as I say, slightly deranged. That, that speech for, was incredible. Yeah. I mean, he said, yeah. I've just got a quote here, if the free world doesn't change communist China, communist China will change, communist China will change us. I mean, it was quite an inflammatory speech, wasn't it? Yes, and he not only, he, he went on in that theme to say that we can't leave it to the people of China alone to change the Chinese Communist Party. We have to help them. So it was all but declaring regime change. So is, is the US policy really now to unseat the Chinese Communist Party? It was deranged. And in that, as part of that, he said, and what we need now is a new alliance of democracies to, to do this. So obviously this is a huge, you, you know, you've outlined to us just the way Australia's approached these talks and really, you know, put put our foot down in some ways in relation to some of those boundaries that we have in in what we want in this region particularly. But how do we navigate the next 100 days? I mean, it's a difficult balancing act, isn't it, given the kind of relationship that uh, Morrison has developed with Trump? Obviously, coronavirus has overtaken everything and, and has distracted everyone. But how to, how to keep... Uh, how to kind of keep that alliance strong but not be drawn into what is going to be an incredibly ugly and divisive campaign. Yeah, that, that's really a, a very good description. If the emperor is mad, you try and keep out of his way and, and try and avoid getting drawn into his madness. Uh, so the trick for Australia now is just to try and keep out of it, uh, not, not to get involved in any way, shape or form. And there was a time... In early in Scott Morrison's prime ministership, where you could see he was looking uh, rather uh, enviously at Trump's some of Trump's uh, behaviours and modus operandi, and including wanting to move the Australian embassy in Israel out of Tel Aviv and put it in Jerusalem, things like that. Were he was yeah. obviously tempted to be a you know an Aussie Trump, but he stopped, especially with the virus. Morrison has moved moved into a different mode altogether. And that's a good thing, in my view, that it's about the national interest now rather than about trying to mimic American populism. And now the trick is simply to try and stay out of this. this. It will be intense, but it will one day be over. Peter, thank you so much for joining us again in the party room. Happy to, friend. See you, Peter. And that's it from us this week. We're so glad to be back in your podcast feed. It is good, isn't it, PK? And don't forget, if you've got a burning question for us about the politics of this crisis that we are currently experiencing, we want your questions. We want to bring back question time. And you can email us at thepartyroom at your.abc.net.au. If you've got questions actually about the health crisis, ask Norman Swan, not us. I mean, <laughs> I, I have spoken to about three million epidemiologists, so I do feel... I was going to say, of... <laughs> I feel a bit of an expert by proxy. So do I, Fran, but I know that I'm not. I know that I have no medical training. So um, just ask Norman's one. Let's just stick yeah. to that. I'm not either. See you, PK. See you, friend.